Welcome to another episode of Dermatologically Tested, the podcast of the British Association of Dermatologists. Today we're talking to a bit of a skin detective as our expert specialises in spotting the clues on the skin of underlying diseases, particularly genetic disease. I have no idea what to expect with this topic. Um, I'm really excited to find out more, to be honest. Genetic disease, not something that I'm really knowledgeable about. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, obviously there is a genetic component to a lot of skin disease, but you know, I think this should be really fascinating. And I think we'll be sort of straying outside of skin disease at points here, because um, as I said, this is sort of about spotting the signs of conditions which aren't necessarily skin related. Yeah, absolutely. But have aspects on the skin. So, without any further ado, uh, we'll welcome our guest today, Dr. Thivi Marathapi, consultant dermatologist with a special interest in the skin and systemic disease. Welcome, Thivi. Thanks, Matt. Lovely to be here. Hi, Harriet. Hi, Thivi. Yeah, it's lovely for you to join us. We can't wait to get stuck in, and I guess I'll uh, get cracking with the first question. Your interest is in skin and systemic disease, as Matt just said. Um, can you just explain um, a little bit about what this actually means? Yes, sure. So one thing that really fascinates me is how the skin can tell us so much about what else is going on inside our body. And I really became interested in this when I was a medical student. So when you're a student, the first thing they tell you when you examine a patient is have a look at your patient. Look at their skin on their hands, look at their nails, look for any changes in their nails that might indicate that they have something else going on. And then you have a look at the skin of their face and the mouth and their lips. And every single organ system that we studied, there was something in the skin that we needed to look for. And it really made me think, wow, the skin is not just, you know, protecting us from the environment. It is a clue. It is our guide. And it is really telling us so much about our internal health. And that really was so fascinating to me. So when I started doing dermatology, the conditions that I was really drawn to were those that had internal features. So I specialize in psoriasis. And one of the areas that I specialize in is psoriasis and joint disease, so psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And sometimes the first clue that you have arthritis is just a few nail changes of psoriasis in your nail. And to me, that's amazing that you can pick up so much just from looking at the skin. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting perspective to come from. And it's not something, you know, that I've necessarily considered before. So I think this is going to be really interesting. So you sort of talk about these, I suppose they're sort of clues that the skin gives you, maybe from skin disease, maybe from something else. How helpful is this, you know, particularly for medical professionals to to understand this? But also, I suppose there is a sort of element for the general public as well, in terms of educating them about these sort of features. Yeah, so that's a really great question. So I think it's incredibly important that um, healthcare professionals are vigilant for skin signs of uh, something else going on. So if we take acne, for example, acne is so common. But if you have additional clues with acne, if someone is noticing that they have hair loss as well, if their periods are slightly irregular, well, maybe that person doesn't only have acne maybe they've got polycystic ovarian syndrome does that need further investigation is that going to affect um, their periods and how uh, they go on to conceive these are just the first clue and a patient may come to you with just the skin symptom but it's asking those extra questions that's going to help you to work out if there's something else going on. So I had a patient last week, actually, who came to see me with acne. And when I asked a few more questions, it turns out they had boils in their armpits and their groins, and they had been too embarrassed to tell anyone. 
And that is acne as the first clue that someone also has hydradenitis suprativa, which is a chronic inflammatory condition which leads to boils often in um, folds and the creases of the skin. But that definitely needed further treatment. And actually treating the acne and the hydradenitis together, so looking after both elements of their skin condition, was really important for that patient. And also for their long-term health care as well, um, looking at the big picture in your patient. And the same goes in our psoriasis clinic. So when we look at patients who have psoriasis, we're always looking to see, have they got arthritis as well? Because psoriasis, we have so many treatments for psoriasis. We can start with creams, we can use light therapy, sometimes tablets or injection treatments. But if this patient also has an arthritis and that arthritis is severe, causing destruction of the joints, now that is irreversible and we need to be really aggressive with our treatment. So we wouldn't just be thinking creams, we'd be thinking, right, this patient may need to go on a tablet or even an injection treatment. So that's when the skin is really giving us clues to more than that, that going on. And there, you know, there are many different skin signs of internal disease. It's something we learn a lot about, as I mentioned in medical school, but also for our exams when we, you know, training to become uh, qualified doctors and higher professionals, uh, specialising in certain fields. It, uh, common questions that come up are what are skin signs of certain underlying cancers that uh, that can be hidden, and that's, you know, sometimes your skin is the only clue that you might have. Um, cancer going on um, and that can present as you know uh, different specific rashes in combination with symptoms for example weight loss or for example a lump but there are clues there and just asking those few extra questions relevant to that skin condition can help us to work out what else might be going on. Yeah I mean that's really interesting so I suppose it's, it's a combination of perhaps diagnosing something that wouldn't otherwise be diagnosed or catching something early or catching something that somebody doesn't want to talk about. Yes, exactly. I mean, I thought the example of a um, patient who had, you know, something more serious that they didn't feel able to talk about was, was really interesting and it's challenging. And obviously we'd say to all patients, don't be shy, your doctor's yeah. seen it all before. Uh, but at the same time, we know that, you know, it's not necessarily straightforward as that. Absolutely. And it's easy to say that from where I'm sat. I mean, you sort of touched upon, obviously, um, the skin being a sign or a clue that something something might not be quite right. Um, and I know that you obviously have a have a keen interest also in nutrition. Um, so nutrition is something you're particularly interested in. Um, how can like our hair and skin be an early warning sign that there might be something off with uh, our nu like a nutrition deficit or something? So one of the commonest reasons for hair loss, particularly in women, is low iron levels. So if someone's coming to you with hair loss, and hair loss can be devastating, people can have clumps of hair falling out in the shower, and the, it can be absolutely demoralising. It can affect people's confidence so much. Um, so if I've got someone coming to me with hair loss, then part of the workup for that is asking them about their diet, whether they're vegetarian, vegan, are they taking any supplements, what are the periods like? If they've got heavy periods, they may be losing a lot of iron every month. And then going on to perform, after examining the patient, relevant blood tests to look for underlying causes. And iron deficiency causing hair loss is so easy to treat and so rewarding because, you know, 
if someone's been struggling with hair loss and it's something simple like a low iron level and supplementing that can be extremely important. But again, coming back to, is this a clue of something else going on? Well, has this patient, why is their period so heavy? Why are they losing so much blood if that's the case? Then that's something that needs further investigation. That may be something they need to see their doctor about. Have they got fibroids? Is there something else going on? So again, it's using that as, um, as a really a, a jump board to go and look at something else that might be happening. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean that's that's really interesting. There's all these sort of strands that seem to come together yes, to, yeah. to to help. Uh, yeah, it's like oh, being it's... a detective, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it is. It really is. It's like truly like looking at all yeah. the clues and all the information. I love that as well. I love that that you can that you can work something out from looking at the skin. And you know, somebody, you know, for example, inflammatory bowel disease can present with skin rashes, and we as the skin specialists can be the only person to pick it up and then we have to go on and refer to specialists and that can be incredibly life-changing um something like celiac disease which so many of your listeners will be really common commonly you know read about and are concerned about so that can present with a skin rash a really itchy rash on the elbows and the knees called dermatitis herpetiformis and that rash largely once you've identified that that patient's got celiac disease if you go on a gluten-free diet, that's the most effective treatment for that rash. So again, that's another really nice clue that something else is going on. Yeah, well, I mean, we saw this a lot during the pandemic. Possibly one of the recent uh, examples of this is COVID-19, the the various skin rashes that can yes, play a yeah. part. And, um, you know, I, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but I remember studies showing that in cases with otherwise very few symptoms, skin rashes were often the only um, obvious symptom. Yes. And so, yeah, really relevant. Really relevant and um, fascinating because the number of different rashes linked to COVID is huge. Yeah. So we've really had to learn um, a whole new vocabulary for COVID rashes. So COVID toes, I mean, that is now in the public vernacular. That was in the Daily Mail. And particularly in children, that might be the only clue that they had um, a COVID-19 infection. Yeah, and I've had patients coming to clinic who've had COVID and they've had severe hair shedding after COVID, a telogen effluvium, which is a shedding of your hair after an incredibly stressful event. Sometimes we see it after someone's had a baby or they've had surgery, but we saw it a great deal after COVID. And um, I've seen some really bizarre nail changes as well um, due to COVID that I've never seen before in my career. Well, exactly. Yeah, I was about to say yes because it's the with COVID, it's the the whole dermatology sort of gamut. It's uh, the hair, the nails, and the skin that you know we've seen changes in, and we get a huge number of inquiries from people sort of asking if we can confirm whether or not they've had COVID based on changes they've had, and obviously that's not something that we can we can do, but it shows you just how prevalent yeah yeah. and and how i think more and more people are becoming aware of it but uh obviously it's not just covid that does this it's um there's all sorts of things and in fact that sort of brings me on to um an area that you've been particularly interested in which is the link between your genes and skin disease but also how it there can be this link between the effects that your genes have on your skin and the effects that your genes have internally and obviously that's really fascinating but quite complex uh so perhaps you could explain in broad terms firstly what the link is between uh our genes and skin disease and then we can go on to tackle the other things it's a big uh, umbrella really your genes and your skin um 
so what I was studying during my PhD is mistakes in the gene and what happens when we have these little mistakes or mutations in the gene. How does that show up in our skin? And does that show up anywhere else? So I was really lucky to be working in a lab where this was um, a really uh, vibrant area for research. My PhD supervisor actually identified a gene which gives you thick skin on your hands and feet, but also causes deafness. And why would a gene that causes thick skin on your hands and feet also cause deafness? Well, uh, again, these genes that perform these important roles in the skin, how the cells are connected to one another, are expressed in other areas of the body. They have other roles. And that really is the subject of, um, of the work that I did in my PhD, the other roles of genes that are important in our skin and what they do. And one of the genes that I studied um, was was fascinating. We, we made some really important discoveries on heart and the link between the heart and the skin. It would be good to know what like the challenges are um, when treating the genetic disease which affects the skin. But it'd also be great to delve a little bit further into um, the connections that you did find uh, between the heart mm-hmm. and the, the skin as well. Yeah, sure. So when it comes to treating genetic skin disease, really, it is so varied. You can have very mild genetic skin disease with almost no symptoms or signs. Sometimes people don't even know that they have it. Um, Or you can have extremely severe genetic skin disease that start from birth uh, and early childhood, for example, epidermolysis bullosa, um, which is caused by a number of different genes. But the one that we commonly associate it with is mutations in keratin genes. Keratins are one of the most abundant proteins in the skin. So they're clearly important for how our skin cells function. And when these genes don't work properly, when there's a mistake in those genes, what happens in these children is that they develop widespread blistering rashes all over the skin. And that can be incredibly difficult to manage because at the moment we can't go back and fix that gene. We are managing the side effects, the downstream effects of that mutation. We're not able to really target the cause of it. So that's why it can be really challenging to treat genetic skin diseases. Uh, But it's important to say genetic skin disease is a huge umbrella and there can be enormous variations as well in the severity of the skin condition. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to say because I think when you think about genetic disease, you sort of think about the more extreme end um, immediately because that's the sort of more talked about area of of genetic disease. But I think that's a sort of interesting point to make and definitely worth emphasising. Yeah, and I think it's good to just talk about the challenges in treating genetic disease. And presumably there's challenges as well with getting diagnoses with genetic disease in general, which perhaps we'll we'll come on to to this in more detail, but perhaps why it's so important to be aware of other signs. Yes, definitely, because the clues can be really difficult to put together. And again, it's kind of like being a a detective, putting all the different pieces of the puzzle together and working out that actually this is um, a fault in a gene that's underlying this condition, an inherited fault in the in the gene. Uh, family history can be really important. So in some of the patients that I studied, asking about a family history and um, knowing uh, the family tree was really important in picking up who, who might be carrying that gene. So Vivi, you were a lead author on a paper which investigated the visible dermatological signs of a very rare sort of heart uh, condition. It would be great if you could sort of tell us a little bit more about that and what you found out in that research paper. Sure, yeah, of course. So um 
This research paper, we studied quite a rare heart condition called arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, which is an inherited disorder of the heart muscle. And it's one of those conditions that is so difficult to pick up because the clues that you have it are so subtle. So sometimes people can have some palpitations or feel um, out of breath. But it's, it can be incredibly dangerous because people can have heart attacks very suddenly. And it is also a common cause of sudden cardiac death. And arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy is something we think about when we think about athletes who drop down suddenly in the middle of a match. That's often what is the underlying cause, that they had um, you know, almost no symptoms before that and a really normal heart scan but suddenly they drop down during a period of very heavy physical activity or exertion. And so um, it's something that cardiologists are very vigilant about. And uh, the problem is that although it can run in families, there can be very few symptoms that somebody is carrying um, the disease. So the genes can't always be straight, aren't always straightforward. And so finding out that somebody has it, picking up the diagnosis is something that the cardiologists do based on a number of different symptoms. So we looked at a group of patients who um, had arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy and we worked off a very rare form arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, which is inherited and you have to carry both forms of an abnormal gene to get it. And it typically presents in children actually very early in life with thickened skin. That's the first sign, thickened skin on the palms and the soles, along with very curly or very frizzy hair. And then these young children go on to develop cardiomyopathy, which can be fatal. And it's uh, these inherited forms are called Carvajal disease or Naxos disease. And again, these are extremely rare. So we took what we learned in the rare form of the disease and we thought, why don't we look at the common form of the disease and see if patients have these symptoms and these signs? Do they have hair problems? Do they have skin problems? And the rare form of the disease is caused by mutations in either one of two genes. One is called desmoplakin and the other one is placoglobin. And both of these genes are really important glue. So they stick our cells together. They stick our skin cells together and they stick our heart cells together. So when they're not working properly, the heart cells can't communicate with each other as effectively and so the conduction of electrical current, electrical impulse through the heart isn't equal. And that's why these patients can develop irregular heart rhythms. And when their skin cells aren't stuck together properly, you think of the places on your skin that undergo the highest stress every day, your feet and your hands, you're walking every day, your whole body weight is going through your feet, you're using your hands multiple times a day. So when your skin is subject to stress, it responds because it's not glued together properly by thickening. So that's how your hands and your feet respond. And we think that you get this curly frizzy hair because the glue that sticks your hair follicle together goes at an angle instead of standing up straight. And when it's angled, you get curly hair. And when it stands up straight, you get straight hair. So that's what we think was going on in the children. So then we started to look at adults who we knew had uh, the mutations, but not inherited in the same way, inherited in a dominant way. So they had one abnormal gene. And we worked with the Heart Hospital, um, who were originally based over at UCL and then moved to join us at Barts. 
And we looked at all of their patients who carried this gene. And I used to go over to the clinic and I would pick out my patients from the waiting area, examine their hair and examine their skin and see if we could see any features. And to be honest, when I went, I was a bit annoyed with my supervisor because it was on a Sunday. I thought, God, you're getting me out of bed on a Sunday (laughs) to go and have a look at these patients. Oh, my goodness. I mean, what a waste of my time. Like, this is not what I signed up for. And then when I got there, I got the shock of my life. These patients were lined up in the waiting area with curly hair. And I was just looking at them like, how is this not already published? How come we don't know about this already? That's crazy. So they were all lined up waiting to have their heart scans. So I started talking to them all one by one. And I just couldn't believe listening to their stories. It was just so interesting. These families had a history going back uh, several generations, in fact, of people in their family who had died suddenly. And that was the only reason that they had been picked up as having um, arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. So one of my patients, their sister had died age 20 playing squash. She died suddenly. And after that, the whole family had to be investigated for cardiomyopathy. And these patients would send me pictures of their relatives from all over, you know, all over the world, deceased relatives, so that I could look at their their hair um, because they obviously didn't have pictures of their hands and feet. But the the curly hair uh, became such a signature for so many of the patients who had uh, the abnormal gene. And in fact, one of them said, oh, we know who carries the gene because we know they have the curly hair. Um, So they had actually noticed it themselves. So that became a really fascinating project. This was a kind of side project on my PhD, but it ended up taking a lot more of my time because it just ended up being so interesting. And I just personally felt like it was so important that we had clues for these patients and their families. When you hear these stories over and over again, any additional clues that you can have to pick up the diagnosis is going to make a difference. Uh, So it was really rewarding. Actually, it was a great project to work on. Yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing. I mean, really, really interesting and really important. And like you say, I mean, the the patients themselves had recognised this, but uh, the clues had never been picked up sufficiently to get published. Uh, I mean, that's really, really interesting. And I suppose I just wanted to understand a little bit better what sort of tests are normally done to find this because the obvious examples that people be aware of is when it happens to a sports person and you know I think a lot of people are sort of always amazed that yes that you know in such a professional arena that these sorts of things aren't caught Mm. presumably it's quite subtle and quite difficult to diagnose absolutely so um the, the sports players particularly undergo rigorous screening to see if they have any cardiac uh, abnormalities and they will undergo yearly screening as well. It's incredibly aggressive because they're so vigilant about it. But the fact is that the condition can occur as it's a sudden cardiac death. It's a sudden condition and the, the heart can look structurally completely normal mm. before um, the episode. With arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, the the, the way that it's diagnosed is there are task force criteria, the ARVC task force criteria. They use a whole different load of criteria to make the diagnosis because the features are so subtle and they're constantly reviewing the task force criteria. So patients would undergo baseline tests. So you'd start off with an ECG, 24-hour heart monitoring, echo, cardiac MRI. That's what my patients were waiting for when I went to to see them. They were all waiting to have their yearly cardiac MRI testing. 
and um, also more interventional procedures as well. Yeah. They undergo these rigorous tests on a very regular basis, but it is difficult to diagnose the condition. And the, and the symptoms can appear later in life as well, which is why the screening for family members is extended over a period of time. Yeah, I was fascinated to know if people with ACM were born with the curly hair or does it develop later or can it just be a mix? Can Sometimes are they born with curly hair and then does it develop later for other people sometimes? So the curly hair they are born with okay. uh, in all of the patients we studied, the curly hair seems to be there from when they're little. So there was one of the patients had a two-year-old and they also had very curly hair and she said, oh, well, you know, she's probably got the gene, uh, but she hasn't been tested yet. But even if you have the curly hair, it doesn't necessarily tell you if you're going to have severe cardiomyopathy or very mild or almost no cardiomyopathy. So it doesn't necessarily tell you that um, you will, you know, go on to develop a fatal heart condition. Certainly not. It's just the clue that you may be carrying the gene. And then how that gene goes on to be uh, expressed or function in that person is dependent on a whole load of other factors. Yeah, so, I mean, presumably the curly hair, it's just another tool in the toolbox for medical professionals. It's not sort of, uh, obviously there's a lot of curly-haired people out there, so, you know, um, they they can't be testing everybody that that turns up with with, uh, curls. But but it's just a really useful clue, I suppose, if there's other things going on. And the other sign was obviously the thickened skin on the hands and feet. So one of the patients was a podiatrist, and she goes, oh, yeah, well, I have weird feet. I know that. I've always had weird feet and a lot of them used to say I'm always having to scrape off this thick layer of extra skin I get these really thick bands on my feet I just thought I had ugly feet so um, it wasn't I wouldn't say it's a really hard and fast sign lots of people have those sorts of changes if they do a lot of sport for example Um, but we have some lovely photographs in the paper of um, some really characteristic um, changes in the skin of the feet in some of our patients and again that's the stress that's the area of your body that's going to show stress because you're putting your body weight through your feet and if your skin cells can't stick together as well as they should do then that's the response that they have. They thicken to compensate. I know that this has just been one area where you've uh, looked at the genetic clues that play out on our skin and hair. Perhaps you can talk about some of the other research you've done because, I mean, I find this fascinating. Going in, you know, I know a little bit about genetic skin disease, but um, obviously this is genetic disease, you know, outside of dermatology. There's just this dermatological link that you and your colleagues have identified so yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the other research you've been doing. Yeah, sure. So we we also studied, um, during my PhD, we also studied um, a rare condition, again inherited, uh, called tylosis with esophageal cancer. And what this condition is, is tylosis which is a thickening of the skin, of again, of the hands and feet, but it's strongly linked to developing esophageal cancer. So 95% of patients will develop uh, carcinoma of the esophagus, uh, usually before the age of 65. And again, this is something that is really inherited in families. So there are a few clusters of these families, one up in Liverpool, another one, I think, over in the Netherlands, another one in the States. There are these families that have been studied in great detail. Their genes have been examined. And actually, my PhD supervisor's team was the one who identified the gene that underlie this condition. So why on earth does thickened skin on the hands and feet 
give you an esophageal cancer? Uh, how are these two things linked? Again, it's, it's a really bizarre link, isn't it, if you think about it? But actually, these patients, they don't just have thickened skin on the hands and feet, they have it in their mouth as well. They develop these white, thick patches in their mouth and in their esophagus. And we think, again, it is this overactive stress response. So the gene that underlies tylosis with esophageal cancer is called IROM2. IROM2 regulates a lot of different inflammatory uh, cytokines, so a lot of different messengers. And uh, we also showed that it regulates keratin and a particular keratin called keratin-16, which is responsible for wound healing. It's the keratin that you need if you cut yourself, that's the keratin that goes up to help bring that wound back together along with a lot of other different factors. So IROM2 seems to be really important in regulating wound healing. And what we think in tylosis is this is wound healing gone wrong. This is wound healing gone out of control. So the food that you're eating, chewing and swallowing is causing injuries to the esophagus. And when those injuries don't heal properly and that they're exaggerated, this exaggerated wound healing, eventually this goes awry and you end up developing a cancer in the esophagus. Uh, and so that was working out the links between the skin and the esophagus was really fascinating part of this research. But what is common between this project, but also the previous project, is that we are able to biopsy the skin so much more easily than we can heart tissue or esophageal tissue. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's where the skin comes in so handy. It's easy to take a sample of the skin, study those cells under the microscope and see what's going on with them and see if we can relate these findings back to, say, for the example, the esophagus or the heart. And that's what the cardiologists found so fascinating. They thought, oh my goodness, it's so hard for us to get a heart biopsy, but you guys can just come in and take a skin biopsy. This is really handy. So we were seeing changes in the skin that were similar to the changes in the heart. And with the second project, we would see similar changes in the skin that we would see in the esophagus as well. And so we were learning from the skin and bringing our findings from the skin back to be helpful in a disease that was much more important and significant than what was going on to the skin. So really helping our colleagues by studying the skin. And we can take those findings of a rare disease and we can help to use them to study more common diseases and diseases that, for example, esophageal cancer that isn't inherited. That was the next part of the project that was happening after I left is can we use the findings that we found in this rare disease? Can we use them to learn more about more common forms of esophageal cancer or more common forms of heart disease as well? Brilliant. The links and everything. It is like a detective movie almost, uh, but very, very fascinating um, and very exciting. Like you said, it could then be used to hopefully diagnose things that are maybe more common um, in the future. Very fascinating stuff. Oh, I'm glad you think so. Thanks, Harriet. So... We've talked a lot about genetic conditions today and they can be hard to identify and hard to treat. But are there any, um, any recent developments or upcoming developments for people with genetic skin disease which you think are particularly exciting? Uh, yeah, so definitely. So recently the, um, a Nobel Prize was awarded to a couple of scientists who developed a technology called CRISPR-Cas9. And CRISPR-Cas9 is gene editing. 
And it is incredibly clever technology that we nicked off bacteria. So they do this already. So we, we borrowed what these clever bacteria were using and we can use that to edit uh, human DNA. And if we think of the DNA like being our instruction manual and a mutation as being a mistake or a typo in our instruction manual. So CRISPR-Cas9 is so clever. It can come in, find that mutation, cut it out and replace it with normal DNA. And you think, right, okay, we, you know, we are so far off being able to use this in humans. But actually, uh, my mind was completely blown when I read an article recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, where CRISPR-Cas9 was used in humans to treat a rare condition, a type of amyloidosis, and it was effective. So there are many groups across the world looking at using this gene editing technology to correct mutations in the skin. And the skin is the perfect place to test this because we can take a sample of skin, we can monitor for improvements, it is easy to observe. So um, we really are, you know, should be at the forefront of this sort of technology. And we have diseases that really need this. So I mentioned at the beginning epidermolysis bullosa, particularly the recessive dystrophic subtype, um, that uh, in gene editing for uh, these rare diseases is being investigated. And in the long term, we really hope that these will provide an effective treatment for patients with genetic conditions where at the moment we are not able to offer them really targeted treatments. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, the idea of a sort of tailored treatment that can fix such an underlying condition is incredible. So much of dermatology is about management of conditions. Absolutely. And managing sort of symptoms and there's many, many chronic conditions which have a genetic element. So I think that's, I mean, what an exciting area of research. And yeah, look forward to, to seeing that as it develops and um, hopefully more and more exciting research papers come out of it around dermatology and, and other areas. Yeah, that would be amazing. Definitely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Vivi, for joining us today. I mean, it, this was really interesting and just could have been a really challenging uh, episode, I think, in terms of a really complex topic. But I thought you explained it all so brilliantly and uh, absolutely loved it. So thank you. Well, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Harriet. Thank you both. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Phoebe Marathapi. What a fantastic guest. I think we managed to say fascinating or a synonym of fascinating <laughs> about 50 times during that podcast episode. But I think that's because we were both learning so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I felt like I've learned so, so much on a subject that I really did know yeah. next to nothing about, really. Yeah, I was about to say, it was from a low bar from, from my point of view. <laughs> same here. Absolutely same here. As for the next episode, um, I hope you will join us because we'll be talking all about cosmetic procedures, uh, specifically non-surgical uh, cosmetic procedures such as Botox and filler. So it should be a truly fascinating one, you might say. Um, and we hope that you join <laughs> us again. in two weeks' time. <laughs>